I think pretty standard, and I think most people will agree, if you have any athlete who's load compromised and who cannot lift heavy, then you should be really considering blood flow restriction. But I think the evidence is pretty clear that we can get you stronger, we can increase muscle mass, we can reduce pain, which is another big thing now, um, in that rehab setting, and more so than what we can do with low load training. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast, we tackle blood flow restriction training, and I've got Stephen Patterson on this episode, and he'll hate for me to say this, but he's definitely an authority within this area, having done multiple research papers, multiple studies into blood flow restriction training. So we'll have a little chat around how it can be applied, how it is applied in the real world, but also what the research says about all these different areas that it can be applied. So strength training, hypertrophy, rehab, recovery, and potentiation. So it's a really interesting area that's getting a lot of airtime and a lot of clubs, organizations buying into blood flow restriction training, but it's just nice to get a hopefully an independent view of what we know about this area, what we think we know, maybe what we don't know. So this air, this episode is a super, super interesting one in a growing area, one that's getting a lot of attention. And hopefully we can uh, dive into what the research says and what some some uh practitioners are doing out there so a really interesting episode coming up with Stephen. this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by rewire fitness mental fitness is quickly becoming a hot topic in our industry as we've found on recent episodes of the podcast but what are you doing to develop the mental fitness of your athletes rewire fitness is a mental fitness platform that helps athletes reach their full potential and avoid burnout by providing integrated tools to holistically improve readiness recovery and resilience their patented technology features protocols from neuroscience psychology physiology and beyond providing a holistic approach to human performance. So Rewire has been backed by some of the biggest names in sport like Under Armour, who invested in their first investment round, and Kyle Korver, NBA All-Star who spent 17 seasons in the league. Make mental wellness and cognitive performance a priority amongst your athletes today. And to learn more, to set up a demo, head to rewirefitness.app forward slash Pacey. That's P-A-C-E-Y. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Stephen. Stephen Patterson, welcome back to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's good to, to be back and have another chat. 
Absolutely. So anyone that wants a bit more of a detailed background, you, they can go back and and uh, listen to the, the first episode, which is a couple of years ago now. But has a few things changed in terms of your role and what you're doing at St. Mary's University? Would you mind just giving a bit of an update? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I guess the main one is we, or I'm now the um, director of the um, our, our research performance centre, um, which is sort of heading up all the research and sort of trying to, to guide us through what we're doing from a performance aspect um, within St. Mary's University. And then also I'm the head of um, the professional doctorate in strength and conditioning also. So I lead that program, which is a distance learning program, um, PhD program, which has two years of taught and three years of research on top of it. So it's a five-year part-time program. We have about sort of seven or eight students every year on it started last year. Um, students all over the world, sort of from America right through to places like Malta and different places across Europe. So um, running quite well at the minute. It's our second year running it, so it's really good and good to be engaging with lots of, I guess, practitioners who are really interested in developing themselves and developing themselves as practitioners and trying to improve where they're going with regards to strength and conditioning. It's become quite a a popular thing to do, hasn't it? The professional doctorate. Like Leeds Beckett do one, LGMU, Birmingham, yourselves. Competitive market. Yeah, like we're we're very specialised in ours is the only one in strength and conditioning. Obviously, the other ones are more sports science and then obviously you have strength and conditioning coaches and, and so on go through it. Um, ours is, I guess, twofold the reasons why we did it. One from our master's, which is online. We wanted to recruit more people from America and the PhD programme was the main thing that we were really getting pushed on. And we also have a lot of students within our own master's program who have went off to do those other professional doctorates. And we were like, well, actually, we, we can give that opportunity to them. Um, but our, our professional doctorate, I guess, is, is a little bit different in that it's more of an American type model in that there's a taught element and then a research element, whereas a lot of the others are a bit more about reflective practice. So ours is a little bit more sort of here's some of the do's and don'ts of training, here's some of the training understanding and so on. And they will have discussions and seminars around that and talk about what people are doing in practice. So they're obviously reflecting as they're within that, but there's more, you know, we're talking about different modalities of training and, and that, that side of things. So it is slightly different, um, but we're hoping I'd say that it's more specific to um, strength and conditioning. But again, it's the education university market. And I'm sure that we'll find more and more coming on board in the next few years and more students wanting to apply for these things. We had a little bit of a chat before we press record and we'll have just i'm just asking this before we get into the blood flow restriction training stuff are, are phds and doctorates slowly becoming the norm and the, the next thing to have to not not gain entry into the into the industry but like even just get to a mid-level position is it almost becoming the norm i would say they're not to get a mid-level position we're not at that stage we need a phd and I, like i don't i'm not an advocate that everyone has to have a phd and so on you know that's definitely not what we're trying to do it for certainly if you get to the higher end and you're looking at the sort of head of performance roles and your director of performance and so on i'm not saying again that you have to have a phd but i think even if you look at what's coming out of america and other places some of those top roles almost you do have to have phds and so on and i think that's translating a, a bit across um here into the UK and elsewhere. And if you know, you look at a lot of practitioners at those top ends, there's, there's quite a lot of people now have them. They've went through the traditional PhD route where they're doing a part-time PhD while they work, which is not necessarily a professional doctorate. But you just have to look at the success, the set of Leeds Beckett, Liverpool, John Moore's, Birmingham and so on with Barry Drust's stuff. 
there's a lot of people, especially in football and other sports, that are doing them. So there's more and more people do have them. And therefore, that makes it a more competitive marketplace when people are then trying to get jobs and apply for positions. Um, and if you have that, I guess, if you have that reflection, you have that understanding, you probably can see things from a, a greater sort of height and actually look down on things and say, well, actually, this is, you need to take a more holistic view over things rather than actually the day-to-day S&C side of things. So um, I don't know if it'll ever be, it, you have to have one to get a certain position. I think we know in sport that doesn't, mean anything you know sometimes who you know so that you don't always have to have the qualification but I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing in some regards but certainly I would never be an advocate where you know if you want to get into SNC you want to get into applied sport science that you have to do undergrad masters SNC because we know the cost that goes across with that across the board and the pay isn't always reflective so I think you have to be careful about when you do these things and whether it's worth your time and that's what you're looking to, you know, if, you're, if you've got a long-term project and that's what you want to do, 100%. But if you know that you're not going to be in sport for much longer, you know, it's not the type of thing that you'd be thinking about. There's transferable skills, but you need to have, you know, consider that. Cool. Right. Let's get into the blood flow restriction training chat, meet of the conversation. Because I think even since last time we spoke, which was probably two or three years ago, things are moving fast in terms of new tech on the market, new research coming out and just more general knowledge about blood flow restriction training. Yeah. It could be said that it could all be down to the podcast that we did a while ago. Well, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the physiology behind blood flow restriction, would you mind just giving us a an overview, just to kind of the basics? Yeah, certainly. Like, I think in its most basic sense, we are restricting blood flow into the working muscle. So we are partially restricting... Um, arterial blood flow and we're preventing venous return so we're preventing that blood returning back to the heart and we're never fully restricting blood flow so we're not fully stopping the blood flow into the muscle and we're just reducing it normally between 40 and 80 percent of reduction in in blood flow um and essentially at most basic level that's causing fatigue earlier and that's really all it is it's not a not a magic potion it's not doing something totally different it's just basically with the protocols we use and what we're actually doing we're actually allowing people to fatigue much earlier. And that fatigue, even though we're using very light loads, means therefore we're recruiting those faster twitch muscle fibers. Hence why you get maybe get stronger, you get increases in muscle mass and so on. So you can do repetitions to failure. And that will, in theory, give you some of the similar responses to blood flow restriction training. But obviously to do that takes much more time, effort and so on. Um, so there's there's certain situations where blood flow restriction is beneficial, um, and others it isn't. There's lots of different things go on. So we get increased recruitment of, of fast twitch fibers. That's probably our main driver, and this early fatigue. Um, there's lots of other things go on. We get increases in protein synthesis. We get increases in gene regulation, and um, whether that for protein um, synthesis and other things. So there's lots of things go on. Very similar to what happens with normal training. And at the end of the day, it gives you a very similar response to normal conventional resistance exercise, just with lower loads. Um, I guess the one thing I would say, there's probably a bit of a, you know, you, you talk about blood flow restriction, and the first thing that people probably think is just resistance exercise. And I think the key thing to always remember is there's multiple different modes and multiple different applications of blood flow restriction. So when you're using that term, you know, is it resistance exercise? Is it aerobic exercise? Is it passive? 
um, where we're doing nothing, we're just applying the blood flow restriction on its own. Is it neuromuscular electrical stimulation? You know, there's loads of different ways that we can apply a stimulus with blood flow restriction. And you can imagine then that they all cause slightly different responses, slightly different adaptations. And from my perspective, the key thing is understanding the physiology. And then you can say, well, how can I apply something to my athlete or my um, individual? And to, you know, create that adaptation or, or to create the response that you're, the desired response that you're looking for. So that recruitment of fast twitch muscle fibers, that, as soon as you say that, I'm guessing it, it perks people's interest. Does that, does that particular adaptation lead to a, a certain use that people are doing out there with, with BFR? Yeah, look, so like at, the end, at the end of the day, if you lift heavy, you're going to recruit those fibers, right? That's just the Henneman side principle will just lead to the idea that once you start lifting um, and once you start lifting a certain load, you're going to recruit those fast twitch fibers. Obviously, if you're lifting 30% of your one repetition max, that's not going to start recruiting them. But especially after that first set, which is that you do it, well, the standard scheme is that 30, 15, 15, and 15 repetition scheme. When you, that first 30 is basically just starting to deoxygenate the tissue. And basically, it doesn't feel any different than it would be if you didn't have the cuff on, really. It's when you go into the second, third, and fourth sets, you start to feel that fatigue. And you can imagine as you fatigue and you start to get tired, the muscle starts to fatigue, it needs to recruit more fibres in order to move the load. Um, and then that's what's causing that greater recruitment at that stage. So we'll, we've got one, two, five scenarios and there may be more, I'm sure there is more, but the five that I've come up with for the purpose of this chat that people may be using BFR for. First one is strength, and you've you've detailed there why someone may use it, but we'll, it'd be great to get some example protocols or just from your knowledge of speaking to practitioners all over the world of what people are actually doing here. So is there any particular protocols that people are using to develop strength and is there any difference between i'm asking you 15 questions in one here but like basic stuff between upper body and lower body how do protocols differ be great to get insight into into that if possible yeah certainly i think with regards to to strength and i think you can probably tie the strength and hypertrophy up a little bit um because you're sort of getting similar responses and, and again it's when you apply it really so um, if you're applying it into someone who is deconditioned or someone who's injured, well, then you're going to get um, some very good strength adaptations and some very rapid strength adaptations, you know, up to 100% um, within a, quite a short period of time. And that's very dependent on where you're starting from. So if you have someone who's deconditioned, who's weak because of injury, well, of course, you're going to get a higher response than you have. You've got someone who's really well trained. So from a strength perspective, you're getting those adaptations, especially in those deconditioned individuals now if we look at bfr compared to say conventional training or low load training on zone and especially in injured populations bfr is more superior from a strength adaptations perspective when we start to move towards heavy load training and as you get healthy well heavy load training is going to give you slightly greater strength adaptations okay and that's because there's more neurological effect because of the load that you're lifting so if you're healthy and you have no problems, then adding blood flow restriction in for a strength adaptation isn't really seen as a wise thing to do. Just lift heavy instead. Exactly. Yeah. And even from a rehab perspective, in my mind, it's a short-term fix to transition back into the heavy load training. Now, what I would do in a rehab setting if I wanted to optimize my strength is I would, whatever limb was injured, 
I would do that with blood flow restriction and in the opposite limb I would use heavy loads. Now in the short term you'd have some sort of asymmetry issues but I don't really care because I'm getting stronger in one limb and the other leg has to catch up and you're going to get that cross transfer effect from the heavy load training which is going to give you even greater adaptations than just the BFR on its own. So I think you want to use heavy to your advantage to but you know at no stage in my opinion should you be using BFR if you're looking to create a strength stimulus um, unless you're on a deload or some other reasons to, to do that. Um, from an upper lower body perspective, again, pretty similar. There's no there's no difference in that. That you know that the science would back that up. That both are going to be similar responses, and both heavy loads would be better than BFR, which are both be- better than low load. Um, protocol wise, it's pretty standard. Again, the, the 30, 15, 15, 15 is pretty standard across all the resistance exercise protocols. You can go to failure, and um, I think you just have to be careful to failure. I've talked earlier about the fatigue that you get with it. If you take yourself to failure every single time then you're potentially, um, it's all right if it's maybe you and me and we're not training for anything else. But if you're working with athletes and they've got other stimulus that's going on, I think we want to try and keep them as fresh as possible and actually do as little as we can for a stimulus um, that's going to give us that adaptation. So just to touch up, Stephen, that 30, yeah. 15, 15, 15, that's, what's the unit's percentage? Um, no, no, so that's 30, 30% of your one repetition max. Yep, okay. Yeah. And those are just your repetitions. So 75 repetitions split into four sets with 30 seconds recovery in between. And again, you get a similar response with regards to the, the fa- if you go to failure as well. Um, I think one of, the, one of the big advantages of that repetition scheme is that actually whilst you, you need to test people for the repetition max and so on, that you can do that. And we do that from a research perspective. In the real world, it's not always possible. If you've got someone who's injured, you're not necessarily going to test a one repetition max. Um, but once you do that one set, once you do that one series of exercise, you'll get a pretty good indication, pretty you know early on, whether or not that's sufficient or not. You know, so if someone's only able to do thirty repetitions, you've loaded a lot far too heavy. If someone's able to get to sort of almost fifty repetitions up to seventy five, you're in that sort of sweet spot, and you can just keep going until they hit seventy five reps a couple of times, and then start to move load. If they do seventy five reps and they felt like this was so easy, there was nothing to it, well then your load's way too low. So within one session, as a practitioner, you'll know exactly what you need to be doing, whether you need to upload, keep it the same and so on. And then from there, you can start manipulating it and moving things um, through from there. So what kind of pressure are we looking at in that 15, 15, 15? <laughs> so again, depending on what the desired outcome is. So um, we standardize our pressures always by limb occlusive pressure or arterial occlusive pressure, which is the minimum pressure required to fully stop all blood flow into the working muscle. And that we classify that as 100%. So if we work between 40 and 80%, we know we're letting blood flow in, um, and therefore we're in that sort of safe realm. We find that anything below 40% limb occlusive pressure, we don't really see the adaptations. And anything above 80%, we don't really need. Um, it's too close to 100% and too painful and so on. We don't definitely don't need to fully stop all blood flow. You'll see fatigue happen quickly and you don't do enough repetitions to create stimulus so um upper body you can probably get away with about 40 to 50 percent of your um limb occlusive pressure i would always go around 50 percent um just mainly because we've done some work a while ago where if you change your body position whenever you're measuring your limb occlusive pressure obviously that changes um 
your limb occlusal pressure outright. So if you're lying down seated standing, obviously that's going to have an influence. And you can imagine if you lie down and do your limb occlusal pressure, and say you pick 40% and then you stand up, well, actually now you're below 40% whenever you're doing the exercise. So I always try to earn a side of caution of 50%, I think would be much better for the upper body so you don't drop under. And for the lower body, you're probably closer towards 60 to 80% of your limb occlusive pressure seems to be more effective just because the muscles are bigger and seems to, to need that more stimulus in order to, to create it. There is some evidence at the lower end, but I think 60 to 80 is generally where we see to, seem to sit with regards to our recommendations and what people are doing. So that limb occlusive pressure, does that, is, that, is there a certain variation between populations or is that pretty okay? Yeah, there will be. So it depends. On, the biggest thing that's going to depend on is the size of your limb. So um, what limb occlusive pressure does, it allows you to standardize across, say, for example, different people, different equipment even, um, and so on. So um, your limb occlusive pressure, you know, if I give you an arbitrary pressure of 150 millimeters of mercury, well, for you, that may be 50% of your limb occlusive pressure, but for me, it might be 30. And all of a sudden, I'm not getting an effective dose at that, even at that pressure. So it allows us to standardize, um, and that's probably the key thing with it. And actually, it's allowed us to standardize even the way we do the research and the way we apply it now in, in practice, because certainly back when I first started, when we were doing all this, that we weren't actually doing that. You know, we weren't, we were just picking arbitrary numbers and we were getting lucky if we got a result or not, because there's two things influence it. The size of the limb influences your limb occlusive pressure and the size of the cuff, the width of the cuff. So the wider the cuff, the lower the limb occlusive pressure and um, the thinner the cuff, it's going to be much higher. Um, but there's a balance, obviously. You don't want it too wide, which it restricts your exercise. So you have to find that balance and act between the two to allow you to perform whatever tasks it is you're trying to do. Um, obviously, there are loads of companies in the market, and they're all they're designing things which are allowing you to do that. Um, but we find normally sort of 10, 12-centimeter cuffs are probably the, the sweet spot in, in that regard. There's, that's not a, you know, 100%, but that's just where it is. We just seem to get that enough room to sort of do the exercise, but also enough... Um, low enough pressure my, my argument always is we want to have as low a pressure as we possibly can have in order to create the adaptation we're not looking to just out compete each other and just go well hold on let's keep putting pressure up we don't need to do that you want to get it as low as possible to create the stimulus so in terms of the cuffs themselves that does that differ between lower body and upper body Are you can you or should you be having a wider cuff for lower and narrow cuff for upper for example yeah, generally you tend to see, again, it depends on the company and who's putting it together and so on. There are different width cuffs for some devices and some devices are just the same size cuff depending on what you do. Some cuffs are straight, you know, just a, a straight cuff, which means, um, and then some are contoured, so some fit the limb, you know, the, the conical shape, so they're actually fit the limb. And obviously you can imagine those ones obviously then reduce your limb occlusive pressure because they fit more snug and they then therefore reduce all the, um, any weight, sort of, I guess, waist. And um, if you have a straight cuff, it's not going to fit perfectly round an arm or a leg. So therefore, it means that there's a little bit more waist in the regards to the pressure it has to be slightly higher to fully restrict that blood flow. Um, so yeah, it really depends on who the the company is and and what they're using, and that will dictate whether or not there's a different size cuff. Some of the more expensive companies and devices they have they give you different options of different sizes. And um, obviously, the lower cheaper versions have just got one cuff but you can obviously buy different size cuffs and, and pump them up and so on so those um are all in play i guess and positioning of the cuff obviously that's going to be important can you give the detail how people could navigate that 
Yeah, look, it, it's probably really simple in, in most sense that you're basically looking to put it as high up the limb as you possibly can, right? And there, there's two main reasons. Well, the main reason for that is that um, there's more, I guess, fat and muscle mass at the very top of the arm or top of the leg. And actually, we're staying away from nerves. As You know, if you go lower down the leg, and you've seen in the past, nobody's doing it anymore, thank goodness, but people used to put it just below the knee. And there's nerves there which can cause real serious damage. Um, and you want to, you know, there's no difference from restricting down there and it's up to the top, apart from it's safer. So actually keeping it at the very top is the is the ideal way to do it. That obviously means you've got a slightly higher limb occlusive pressure, but it's going to be there when you're doing the exercise. So it's not a it's not a major thing. And actually, it's probably easier to do that. You know, you can imagine if you're trying to contract your muscle and the cuff's right in the middle of the muscle belly, that's not going to be useful. Um, so we want to have it as high up as possible to sort of stop that happening. So just to move down the the five um, ways that people may be using BFR. So we've kind of nailed the strength and the hypertrophy, putting them together. Yeah. Just, so, just, just, sorry, just to say, on. Rob, just yeah, the, yeah. the the hypertrophy side of things is, is slightly different from the strength in that in that it's as effective as heavy load training. So even in healthy people. So if you want to put on muscle mass um, and you have blood flow restriction or you have heavy load training you could use both interchangeably they will both do the same things strength will be better with heavy load hypertrophy no difference now my my argument still is if you're healthy in general why would you waste the time of applying cuffs to do it and so on when you can just lift heavy so but obviously from a rehab perspective you're getting when you can't lift heavy it's very beneficial and we know we lose a lot of muscle mass during certain injuries and so on so that's where a lot of it comes in the other part where you can use it from a hypertrophy perspective, I guess, in healthy individuals is more around um, some of the there's a high frequency aspect of it. We can get some adaptations pretty quickly in two to three weeks if you do it once or twice a day. Um, so there's, again, opportunities um, of allowing you to do this almost microdosing of BFR in certain strategies. Or, you know, If you've got someone who needs to get muscle on quickly or, or different things, there's an opportunity there. Um, but it's about thinking about the logic again that doesn't mean it's special it just means you're because you recover quicker from it you actually can then put a higher stimulus but once you get the two or three weeks you're not going to get any more benefit from that and if you've done that once or twice before you're not going to keep getting the benefit of it you know as you would expect with any type of training modality so hypertrophy there's certainly elements there where you can think about how you can mix and match it and there's certainly some aspect with regards to the athletes um but again if you can lift heavy Unless you've got things set up in a really quick and easy manner, I would stay heavy. I wouldn't bother if, if I'm healthy. So apart from the frequency and the microdosing aspect of if you're looking for hypertrophy, if you're a healthy athlete, what, if, if that's the goal, why are, what's, the, what's the justification for people using BFR in them scenarios? Healthy athlete, hypertrophy aim, there's people out there clearly using BFR for with them two things. What's their justification? What do you think their justification is for it? Honestly, I don't know. Um, I think realistically, I think it's probably a bit of buy-in from the athlete. It's uh, you know the usual. Actually, if we if we if we program eighty percent of our work to do this and give the athlete twenty percent, so they feel that they're getting something from it and they get a pump or they do whatever. Um, Maybe that's where it comes into play. I think the, the a lot of people in the early days were talking about doing things like um, using it as a finisher and saying you're potentially getting greater adaptations as a finisher with BFR. There was one study which showed it, but it's not 
it's not true it, it's been disproved quite a few times so it's not it's not giving you any added benefit and i guess there's a bit of a potentially it allows you to add a bit more volume because so there, there is some potential there but you know in a match volume workload it's not giving you any more but if you can do more volume with it potentially there's some benefit there um so i think it's a bit of a mix and match of um of that and again look athletes the one thing i would say athletes love blood flow restriction training because they like the pain they, they like you know doing bfr is not not a straightforward exercise it's not it, it's quite intense and what we find is athletes feel like they've worked so they when they do it they think well i've actually had a session here i can feel the muscle i know there's a pump i, I i've got that sensation so therefore they feel like they've had something happening where sometimes you know you could do slightly lower repetitions you know you're creating a stimulus and adaptation but you don't really feel like you've had a pump or anything from it and they start thinking was that having anything whereas with this it just triggers them and they think they're potentially having something so especially from a hypertrophy perspective that's where there is there's other things around pain which we can talk about a bit later if you want which i think there is big benefits of and um, but that's that would be where i would go if i've got people who are generally healthy or athletes Let's go there now. We can we can, okay. link, we can yeah. we can go come back to the rehab. We've touched on yeah. rehab a little little bit, but yeah, talk to us about the pain situation. Okay, so, so I guess we've done a lot of work recently, um, and I think if you look back to what everyone was doing back originally, when people talk about pain and blood flow restriction, we're talking about the pain you felt during the exercise. Okay, and it was sore, and people didn't like it, or they were able to push through it, and so on. And that was a lot of it. There is pain when you do BFR, but that's a lot of it because we weren't setting pressures correctly, weren't using the right equipment loads all the other things that go with it um in more recent times i guess since it's went into the rehab realm a lot of times people keep coming back saying i feel you know pain free in the next you know couple of hours after doing this and all, and people were getting this sort of reporting back all the time now you can imagine if you were healthy nobody was reporting that because they weren't in pain in the first place so we did a study a few years ago in acl and um, population in the nhs um, and we demonstrated that we got a reduction in pain following blood flow restriction um for up to 24 hours after the exercise so people who are in pain had no pain for 24 hours or reduced pain in 24 hours compared to other types of training that they would be doing sort of from a rehab perspective so we took it back a step and we started to say well let's look at some of these mechanisms of what's happening and we did another couple of studies um both in resistance exercise and aerobic exercise where we looked at um both the localized effects, so the muscle that was worked, and then the, the systemic effect, so the muscles away from um, the ones that were exercised, to have a look at the analgesic effect. And we were able to demonstrate um, an analgesic effect across the board, both locally and systemically, um, with blood flow restriction um, within an hour of, or a couple of, sort of half an hour of exercise. But more importantly, the local effect, so the exercise muscle, had a reduced pain again for 24 hours. So we're seeing this analgesic effect, which lasts for up to 24 hours and um, post-exercise, which is more than what we see with normal conventional training. Um, there's two sort of main reasons behind it. One is it um, leads to an increase in the endocannabinoid system. So um, we get some upregulation of some of those um, markers of the endocannabinoid system, which similar you know, cannabis and other things, which are going to have a pain effect. But there's also pain modulation. So because you are you're in pain within the muscle when you're doing the exercise that seems to desensitize and have a reduction in pain afterwards um, and said so we've done that in both aerobic exercise 
and resistance exercise. So we've seen it, you know, a few times actually. Um, and I think that's probably where there's, there's a lot of scope with regards to thinking about the physiology and understanding what's going on and then how you apply that in with your athletes. So for example, you take the, the NBA, um, you will regularly see the athletes of the NBA doing blood flow restriction before um, matches or before events. And the main reason is they're trying to reduce pain. Those guys are you know, quite large, big. They've got a lot of niggles, um, you know, just throughout the season and travel and different things. And they're using them quite extensively for um, pain modulation to reduce pain before games, reduce pain before training, those sorts of types of things. Now, there's some issues with that. Obviously, if someone, it depends what pain is. You know, if, if it's a, if it's something that's masking an injury or it's going to lead to an injury, potentially if you reduce that, you have some issues with that. Um, you could potentially injure someone. Um, but I think in general, that's where people are using it. There's also the potential of using it afterwards to reduce pain, whether depending on what that's done. And, and there are a lot of clubs, organisations engaging with us and speaking to us about how they do that and, and why they would use that. And then there's a much broader sense of people who are in pain more regularly day to day and having a um, a reduction in pain for quite a long period of time is quite um, both advantageous and, and sort of warranted and wanted, I guess, from, from practitioners. So is the pain reduction solely muscular or does that go out to other structures, tendons, etc.? Yeah, it's... I guess it's hard. Mainly muscular is what we've, we're measuring at the minute. Um, there's a lot of people are doing stuff around other things, tendons and other things. Um, whether it has the, the, whether it's the the structure of the tendon, I would be doubtful. I think it's more the muscle in the surrounding area that you're potentially having that um, pain response. Um, which then is then maybe everything else feels better with it. Um, and you know, pain is a is an absolute minefield. And from coming from someone who's not got that background in it. You know, even looking at because what's pain on a subjective score compared to an algometer which you push in against someone's muscle to see how much pain they can take versus you know a cold presser test where you put your hand in cold water for as long as you can there's loads of different ways that you can measure it and it measures slightly different variations of what pain is um, and i think that's where the the difficulty is in that we're seeing things happening but actually um it's hard to then say well this has a blanket approach to everyone and everything you know i'm hearing of people having reduce pain in different scores with regards to even you know session rpe scores and other things that they're getting from it and, and recovery scores after so they're seeing things like that um but again how consistent that is i think it's how it applies in and what it, you know what the stimulus has been in order for you to help you reduce that so is there any particular protocols that you've seen work when it comes to kind of pre pre-training for the athlete populations yeah so we the study that we did and the what is recommending what people have been doing is we find that higher pressure is more effective so this is where we did 40 versus 80 percent and whilst both were more effective than all the other types of training 80 percent was actually the most effective so it kind of makes sense if we're talking about that pain modulation the more pain that we can create within the muscle the more desensitization and the more um, pain effect that we have at a later time so it seems to be those higher pressures. So 80% limb occlusal pressure. Repetitions, again, were pretty standard of the 75 repetitions. When it came to the aerobic exercise study, um, we actually <coughs> for me, we actually didn't see um, pain or, sorry, limb occlusal pressure having as much of an effect. And the main reason being is that we did an exercise or we did a cycling protocol 
where we had people do intervals of five minutes on, one minute off. And essentially what we demonstrated was there's some people can't take 80% limb occlusion pressure when they're cycling because you're going for 20 minutes in comparison to like six minutes, even with those periods of time where you have off. Um, and you know VO2 max around about 40-50% VO2 max, so it's quite low intensity, um, but people couldn't take that. So we were looking sort of more 40-60% to 60%, um, and there was no difference. So generally, if you're doing the resistance exercise, slightly higher um, pressures, um, but with the aerobic exercise, it's probably middle of the road. The biggest change was definitely with the resistance exercise compared. We didn't compare, obviously, aerobic versus resistance, but if you, you know, from a data perspective, and you look at the changes that we've seen, it, there's a bigger response with regards to the resistance. Interesting. Let's, let's circle back, back to the rehab side. Yep. I know we've touched on it a couple of times, but <laughs> is there any particular case studies or reasons that people may go, I think it's time we have a little try of this and we speak to an expert like you and try to go down that route? Why would, why would someone choose to go down that route versus their traditional kind of return to play protocols? Yeah, look, I think I think the evidence is pretty clear now. And there's been loads of studies, especially rehab, where in the last few years there's been a bit of an explosion in the area. And even the mon- number of studies that we know are currently ongoing within different groups and across across the world, um, America, you know, Scandinavia, Australia, everywhere. So everyone's now looking at it from that perspective. I think pretty standard and I think most people will agree, if you have any athlete who's load compromised and who cannot lift heavy, then you should be really considering blood flow restriction. Okay. Now, as I said, if you if you have someone who, um, there'll be people who don't want to do it, and that's totally fine. And you know, I'm not saying here you have to do it by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that we can get you stronger, we can increase muscle mass, we can reduce pain, which is another big thing now, um, in that rehab setting. And more so than what we can do with low load training. Now, if we take low load training to failure, again, in a lab, it's effective. Stuart Phillips's lab in Canada have shown it quite a few times. Personally, I'm not sure how effective it is with regards to the real world in that, you know, we know ourselves, if you push people to a limit, well, how far do you have to push them to go to failure? And actually, what is true failure? And I think in a lab, when you're screaming and shouting at someone, you can do that. But actually, in the real world, do, do people get there? Um, and if you do get there, you're doing double, triple the amount of repetitions that you would be with BFR. So I think if, obviously if you have someone who can't use it for a health reason, okay, fair enough. But generally for a short window, I think blood flow restriction is something that can be used and should be used. Even to the point where I'm not advocating this 100%, but it recently even there's been some work around tendon adaptations and so on that Christopher Sentner's lab have done out of Germany, which are showing some adaptations and tendon strength um, and morphology changes within the tendon which we didn't originally think or see before so I know a lot of people are using around tendon ruptures um, and as well as muscle injuries muscle strain and so on so at its most basic level anytime anybody's limb compromised and you can't lift heavy blood flow restriction is, is probably the most beneficial at that time once they start to transition and once they start to get stronger and they can start to load just transition off. There's absolutely no, you know, you shouldn't be staying on it for months and months at a time. You can easily start to come off it. And as I said, if you have that model I talked about earlier on, where you have that heavy leg or arm and then that blood flow restriction arm, I think you're going to get those gains much quicker. You're going to get stronger much quicker and you can transition 
much quicker. I think four to six weeks at a max is where you would be. I think depending on what you're doing, generally the blood flow restriction resistance exercise is the standard go-to because it's the one that seems to give us the most bang for the buck and we actually get, it's quick and easy to do. You could do neuromuscular electrical stimulation would be a far in the early days if you're struggling to move and, and get through ranges of motion and so on. And there's some nice evidence coming out about that. It makes sense. It's just taking the brain away from the contraction. So, you know, it makes sense that it would work. Um, but again, you're going to obviously want probably move towards the BFR resistance exercise. It's the main thing. You can do aerobic exercise too at that stage, which is going to give you some benefit from a strength hypertrophy side of things, but not as much as what the um, resistance exercise will. So it's good to get a very quick break in the chat with Stephen. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around recovery and how blood flow restriction training can be used when recovering from a match, recovering from training, what the research says and what some practitioners out there are doing and saying what works and what doesn't. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the episode with Stephen. Let's get into one that's that I think is really interesting, and it's the recovery side. Yeah. We've mentioned about pain reduction post-exercise, so that's kind of in this realm anyway. But is BFR a solution, not a solution, but part of a solution for athletes, general population, post-training to maximize recovery, to enable them to go again? 
Okay, so we've done some of the research in this area, so I'll, throw, I'll put my hand up and say that from the beginning here. I will, I guess we're at a stage where there is some merit to it, okay? So clearly we've done some studies which there's merit to. There was an early study, I think it was before the London 2012, so it's quite a while ago, um, I think the paper was by Bevan, um, and they had done some work with it, like just a normal training program, um, just you know some sprints, some resistance exercise and so on, and they'd done a um, blood flow restriction immediately after, passively, by the way, so no exercise, just applying the cuff, inflating it up to your pressure, almost to 100% of your limb occlusive pressure. So this is a slightly different application. This is now fully restricting all blood flow and then releasing it, and almost having intermittent cycles of occlusion and um, reperfusion, I guess. And essentially, they showed that there were some benefits of performance. We were able to maintain performance the next day during another session. Um, there's some weaknesses, obviously, in the study, some little things that were more applied in, in a setting. We took it back a level and looked at muscle damage um, just to sort of say, well, hold on, here's some of the markers that we would see following damage and following to help us with recovery. Let's have a look and see what it works on. And we found that, again, the passive blood flow restriction um, was three by five minutes, so five minutes on, five minutes off, repeated three times, um, helped you recover at a much faster rate. Essentially, we were recovering 24 hours earlier, even 48 hours earlier in some of the markers. And I guess my the main reason we were excited about was that sometimes you see in these recovery studies, you see improvements in things like creatine kinase or swelling or some of these other markers, but there's no change in function. And the argument is, well, okay, you feel better, but actually you're still poor from a function perspective, like strength's down, that could cause issues. Well, we were actually seeing strength was improved much quicker um, and recovered to much at a much faster rate, as well as reduced swelling, reduced pain, creatine kinase and so on. Um, we've done a few other things where we've looked at it before exercise, so pre almost ischemic preconditioning. Um, we've done that before the exercise as a recovery modality, and we've shown there's some benefit there. My only argument against it is, are we really thinking about doing things before exercise to help us with recovery after exercise? I think it's a little bit all over the place so for me it's about doing it immediately post it's the key thing um so i think there's some merit in it i think you do have to consider what's going on really um i think it's very much like um contrast therapy hot and cold your vasoconstriction vasodilation that's what you're doing you're doing it with a cuff so the advantages are you can take cuffs with you on the road wherever you're playing and so on you can inflate deflate and so on you can do that you can give every player cough they can all do their own thing as long as they know what pressures they need to go to so there's benefits in that regard i think there's some if i look at what people are suggesting in other places and what's going on i think people are saying well recovery is going to have a big impact and it's all about doing just like sort of i've seen some examples of people doing cycling with blood flow restriction afterwards as a recovery modality there's merit to it and the merit would be that pain reduction that we talked about because we've shown that study which we can do aerobic exercise and we get a reduction in pain my only thing with it is i'm not sure if it's all i'm not sure if it's fully recovery and again there's no evidence of this by the way so um change my mind put the evidence out i'm happy to sort of you know go go that route and we're sort of we're trying to look at some of these things as well um but we know that low load aerobic exercise with blood flow restriction so 40 50 percent of your vo2 max or just psyched, spinning your legs over or walking with blood flow restriction can lead to an aerobic stimulus. Okay, we know it improves VO2 max. We know it improves a lot of the physiological markers which are important for aerobic adaptations. So 
whilst we know it also reduces pain, we're creating an aerobic stimulus there. Now, my only concern is if we're doing um, aerobic BFR after every training session to help you recover, is that actually we're not recovering, we're still training. Okay, so I think there's... Now, it may be that that's, that's where the advantage comes in because actually people are getting just a bit more top-up conditioning and therefore, whilst they're also getting this pain reduction, they're also getting a little bit of improvement, especially localised within the tissue of some improvements there. So long-term, that's helping them from a recovery perspective. But most of the evidence, most of the literature is on the passive application, so just with no exercise whatsoever. Um, and whilst I, I think it's useful and I think there is potential there, I also think it's early days. I also think if you're doing it, you have to play around with a couple of players and, and see what, how they feel. I've had many conversations with practitioners and people who are using it um, and have had some very, very convincing results from it. But obviously that's not peer-reviewed, N of ones, all the usual that goes with it. So I can't sit here and say it's definitely what's happened. But I know it's happening in most a lot of professional clubs internationally and locally. Um, so I think there is some merit to it. I just think we have to be a little bit careful of having blanket. Just throwing, just going, actually, this is definitely going to work across the board because it, it, the evidence is all around the passive side of things. I think once we start moving it into those more the aerobic side of things, I think there's merit to it and we're trying to study it to try and investigate it. But we haven't seen the evidence yet that that is what's happening and there's definitely a recovery aspect to it. So those clubs, organisations or individuals that are having or seeing positive results in a recovery um, setting, how are they monitoring recovery? Yeah, so I think a lot of the time it's more they're looking at sort of outputs sometimes the next day and having to look and see whether people are able to maintain outputs over the over a period of time and um, look at some of the recovery scores that they're maybe asking them for and um, how they're feeling and all the usual stuff. And I think that's where we have to be a little bit careful. You put something on someone, we know, you tell them it works, you tell them it's going to help them recovery and they come in the next day and say, I'm feeling much better. Yes, potentially you're going to feel much better from a placebo perspective. I said, I'm pretty happy that if we do aerobic BFR, we're going to get a pain reduction because we've seen that. So I've no doubt that people are feeling a little bit less sore. So that that's a good thing. But as I said, I think we just have to be a little bit careful in that I also believe that's generally going to create an aerobic stimulus. And whilst in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not a bad thing. I think if you're so concerned about monitoring workload and all the other things that go in, you're putting a recovery modality in, which is still stimulating an adaptation. That's you're not thinking about that. You're not covering that part of it, and that could. I'm not saying it's going to cause a lot of issues, but it could start to lead to some issues in, in players if they're doing too much. Mm-hmm. So, an example: you've got a game on a Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday recovery day, and this is just my experience. You'll see the eleven that did the most minutes, or twelve did the most minutes, sat on a spin bike, and they'll do half an hour on a spin bike. They'll do a little game at this football, by the way, a little game at yep. tennis, and they'll go. <laughs> Is it worth them who those who are sat on the sat on the spin bike? Is it beneficial to have a cuff cuffs on the legs? Is that gonna is that gonna help the recovery process, which is why they're on the bike in the first place? I think at its, at the basic level, we don't know because because we just haven't done that. What we what we do know is on a very similar protocol, we've shown that that reduces pain or creates an analgesic effect. So if those players Okay, the thing is, what are they, ta- are they, is it, are they fatigued? 
have they got pain? Do you, do you know what I mean? So actually, if you if they've got niggles and pain, then that beneficial. If it's more of a neural, we just feel tired. I'm not sure it's helping. Again, I don't know that for sure. Just intuitively and knowing what the adaptation, the response is, I don't believe that that's creating recovery. But if they're in pain, they've got niggles and so on. I think there's potential there. Um, but it's that balancing act. If you've got a player, as you said, they've played played the Tuesday night, they're recovering on the Wednesday, but they've played six times in the last two weeks is an aerobic stimulus on the recovery day the best thing for them which if you apply bfr because what remember when you apply blood flow restriction to that stimulus which is just spinning the legs you're making work harder heart rate's increasing you're getting increasing things like blood lactate responses you're getting um increases in vo2 all these things are starting to happen and that's not what you're meant to be doing from that's not the reason why you're doing the recovery aspect of it so that's where I just think we have to, from a practitioner perspective, think about why you're doing it and think about how you're planning it. I don't think it's a blanket approach. We just go, actually, just just throw this on for everybody. And it's going to have the same outcome and effect. I think there's probably a bit more nuance to it. I think we need to think about what is the physio- physiological response or what are we trying to drive here? What are we trying to adapt to? Yeah. Cool. Next, next point. And I think it's a really interesting one and a really important one, obviously. And I think we've covered it a little you've covered it a little bit, and that's just safety considerations, like super basic, like stick it out there just as a <laughs> bit of a um, you know, small print when it comes to BFR. What are the main safety considerations that practitioners need to be aware of? Yeah, look, I think in the grand scheme of things, it's relative it's really safe and uh, no issues in the grand scheme of things, especially with athletes who are generally healthy no problems, so on. If you have people who have some pre-existing conditions, then there might be some risks. So people who have got histories of blood clots or at risk of extra blood clotting and so on, they're the people who are mainly at risk. Um, BFR on its own doesn't cause blood clotting. There's a there's a lot of evidence to show actually the inflation deflation actually decreases the risk of thrombosis and so on. So all that's really good and that's probably in... But you can imagine if you have blood clot or you have something going on, then all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure you're increasing and decreasing things releasing it and that can move something around so that's where the risk comes down from that side of things um again neurological sort of responses around nerves and that's why we put the cuffs as high as we possibly can it's why we want to generally know what pressure we're applying and so on so that we can try and again make it as low as possible for the desired outcome that's where we're sort of going with um if you've got something again in rehab the early stages of rehab especially after surgery um, there's a lot of people who are a bit concerned about well, when do you start you know wh- wh- when's the optimal time to start applying this because you've just come out of surgery people are at risk from blood clots and so on following surgery just because you've been lying around and what's going on um we're probably a little bit more conservative in the uk than what we would be in places like america whereas we'd probably wait sort of seven to ten days before applying it in america they're basically applying it day one day two yeah so it's i guess it's just the the aggressive and it depends on who the surgeon is, what their background is, what they're willing to accept, because that's where a lot of the, especially in those early stages, it's dictated by the surgeon and what they're happy with. Um, a lot of the American surgeons have really come on board with blood flow restriction and are basically saying, we want this done immediately to stop atrophy and so on. Um, over here, we're a little bit more sort of, I guess, reserved and sort of take a little bit longer to sort of to apply it in. Um, but, you know, five to, se- five to seven days after is probably a good starting point where you've made sure no one's got any risks or clots and therefore you can start a planet. Um, 
you get increased cardiovascular demand when you start to apply blood flow restriction and so on, but it's not any more than what it would be if you're lifting heavy. So there's a lot of things that people put out there and say, well, this does, blood flow restriction does this and it does that. But actually, when you compare it to normal resistance exercise or other, other type modes of exercise, it's not doing anything different. And that's across the board, adaptations through to um, you know safety aspects. So as long as you, in my head, can apply the correct pressure, standardize that in some way, those are some of the key things that allow us to, to do things safely. And um, we put together a paper a few years ago now, um, I think we reported it last time we were on, I can't fully remember, but um, you know, we brought a lot of people together, experts sort of say this is what we do, and uh, you know what, nothing's changed in it. You know, it's still the same thing that we should be doing. It's free access, you can see it. So, um, you know, that's where I would go to and have a look and you'd see the sort of way things to concern about safety in that regard. I've le- potentially left the most <laughs> uncomfortable or area that we might need to be a little bit, or you might need to be a little bit careful about, and that's the technology. I know that can be a difficult thing to navigate, some in your, your position. Since we've last spoke, there is more tech out there. I don't know what was on the market at the time. Um, how can people navigate the different options that are out there when it comes to blood flow restriction technology? Yeah, look, I think I think at its most basic level, everyone navigates blood flow restriction based off price. You know, from speaking to different people, clubs, organizations, they are very price orientated in what they want to do and so on, and then that's what they will they will go with um you have the the top of the range devices which are more from surgical tourniquets um surgical tourniquet companies and they have everything built in from limb occlusive pressure within them um right through to you've got just normal handheld cuffs and um, which you can just pump up which you can maybe use a doppler to set a pressure you've now got equipment that's built into clothing which then allows you to um, restrict blood flow restriction with um, by moving a band around the arm and so on. So there's there's loads of different companies on the market. There's loads of different things that are going there. Um, I would, if I was a practitioner, the things I would be looking at is one: what's the evidence that the device is, device works? That's that's my key thing. Um, I think we can we can say that blood flow restriction as a modality. Is pretty effective in certain situations. The evidence is there. There's well over 200 papers showing it works, um, but it's doing some things, standardized things across the board, and generally it's being able to set a pressure to a certain amount. Um, it's doing certain repetitions and all these different things that go with it. So I think you have to really take that on board when you're when you're looking at what's what's out there. Um, but I think you know, again, I'm not involved. I'm not um, involved in the tech technology perspective i don't own any companies or anything like that so i think the key thing to consider is you know ask questions what's the evidence that this is working what's the evidence this is going to do this and that have you got it you know people showing you what's going on and so on and then you can start to sort of decide what it is you're going to do i said most of the technology on the market works i'm sure it does it's restricting blood flow i can i can take a band and tie my arm up right now and get blood flow restriction and it'll be effective that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be the optimal way to do it and the safest way to do it so that's where we have to consider what what people are doing and how you're applying it and who you're applying it to and um, i think if you're applying it within generally with your athletes and your healthy individuals you can get away with a lot and you do see that you know even online you see people use um like tourniquets like you, you tighten up to take a blood 
measurement from you know actually if you're gonna take a cannula and so on take actual um blood and um, venous blood and so on so people are like that's what people used to sell them on ebay for blood flow restriction um so it will work of course it will whether it gives you a standardized reduction in blood flow every time and what you know you're doing and so on is a different debate and um, so i think there's certainly more options for people now um which i think is a good thing um i'm always a little bit sort of risk averse so i'm always a little bit going well think about why you're using it and why you need it um so do we need like i don't know as it, as it gets more into the healthy general public i get a bit more concerned with blood flow restriction and that's just me with you know research head on going oh i just you just know someone's going to do something stupid <laughs> That's, you know nature. someone's doing something for instagram <laughs> no, 100% and yeah. then and then what happens next all of a sudden there's some regulation over why we can and can't use it and so on because someone's done something that no one's ever suggested they should do so that i really am a i'm a really strong advocate of it should be the practitioners who are guiding this and the practitioners who are sort of making sure they oversee it like someone at a club or organization is the person the go-to person for it um just so that you have a standardized protocol and approach within your own club or your own organization. Because I think once you start going down the realm of just let everybody do what they want, let the players do what they want, you know what's going to happen. You know, you know, because that would be if you did any type, you know, if you said to the, as an S&C coach, you said, I'm going to let the players decide what they want to do in the gym. They're going to pick all their exercises, going to pick all their loads. What do you think is going to happen? Some, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> and, and there's going to be problems yeah. and someone's going to get injured. And then whose fault's that? So I, I think the same thing's going to happen, especially when we start going, well, you can do it at home and you can do it in your own time. You do this and that. There's a lot of people do things and use it. And I don't necessarily think they know what they're doing. Cool. Right. Where is the, I mean, we've probably answered this throughout. It's probably quite obvious, <clears throat> but where's the research going for you guys, for, for various groups all over the, uh, all over the world. And where's the best place for people to get up to date with the info that you're putting out, social media, research gate, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think, like certainly from our perspective, we're really focused on the pain side of things recently. Um, we've got someone at the minute who's doing sort of a lot of neuromuscular stuff and stimulating the brain to see exactly where some of this response is coming from and so on. So that's where we're doing some of our work on. Um, the recovery side of things, again, has really kicked off in the last few years. And I know there's um, some people are looking at recovery. We're looking to do a few extra studies in that. Um, always willing to collaborate with people and so on but um we're looking to sort of try and understand things a little bit deeper with regards to recovery um, and i think that's probably where you will see a, a bit of a movement in it depending on what people you know what, what comes out of that research i think the biggest area by any stretch of the imagination is the aerobic side um, the resistance exercise side is i think i put a tweet out the other day it's in it it's so it's easy like it really, you know, it's not complicated. You know, you put a load of thirty percent, you one repetition max. You do seventy five repetitions. You adjust depending on how people felt. You put a pressure between forty and eighty percent of limit occlusive pressure. Go <laughs> do one, do one or two exercises with some recovery in between. You know, deflation in between. You will get a stimulus there, and you'll create an adaptation, and you can do that for a number of weeks until you need to transition off. Okay, that's that's easy. That's a, a real simple thing, and that's why people do it. It's most effective as well. In more recent times, <coughs> for me, the aerobic side of things used to focus a lot on um, 
I think where people really jumped on it at the beginning was we got improvements in strength and improvements in muscle mass with aerobic exercise. And we don't get that with normal aerobic exercise. So adding blood flow restriction in there, especially in people who are less trained or deconditioned. Okay. And I know of one case of in football that someone's again won't mention the team, but they've used it, used a walking protocol only for one of their athletes and um, in following um surgery and actually have been or injury and been able to maintain muscle mass throughout just with walking and blood flow restriction. So it is effective, especially when you're deconditioned or you're you know you're not training to the same level. It's definitely having that effect. But what people are now looking at is actually can we improve the outcomes from an aerobic perspective? And I think even if you look in the last year, there's been about three or four different groups over the world have put out review articles and all slightly different where they think blood flow restriction and aerobic exercise is going to have its its impact. Um, so that's where I know there's definitely going to be lots of work going on. And you can imagine the minefield that becomes aerobic exercise because, I said, resistance exercise becomes much simpler when you look at it. When you start doing aerobic exercise, well, how do you create an aerobic adaptation? Well, you can do anaerobic-type all-out sprints and the recovery you get in between is what started driving the um, adaptation. You can do high-intensity aerobic intervals. You can do slightly more aerobic intervals around threshold and turn point and those sorts of areas. You can do long, slow, steady state. Already there's different modalities within aerobic exercise that um, you can use just to create a stimulus without then even applying blood flow restriction or different pressures or different intensities and you see where it starts to get a bit murky and I think it will take a bit of time for the first to really get a full grip and handle of exactly what's going on and um, there is some really nice evidence there that's out there which shows it's effective and um, there's some really good work around I think you're getting sort of you get a central response so you, we do get improvements in um, from you know centrally but we also get a localized effect to the local tissue we get increased capillarization and other things so there there's you may be able to target certain aspects of it um, and that may lead into even things like going into altitude and heat and environmental factors that potentially we can, um, I think Jamie Burr, who I know you've done a thing with recently, Jamie's done some stuff, not published, but I've seen it at a conference, we're looking at hemoglobin mass and other things and trying to look at some of the mechanisms behind what's driving some of these adaptations because again, they're getting big improvements in things like VO2 max and so on in very short periods of time two to three weeks if they're using it from a high frequency perspective so the biggest difficulty is it's really hard for me to say this is the protocol for aerobic we did that in our paper three or four years ago but it's a very generic protocol in recent times some of the um, scandinavian groups have started to use high intensity intervals so closer to sort of 60 i think the study that was 50 60 and 70 percent of vo2 max for five minute intervals or three minute intervals and then a period of recovery in between. But they had to release the cuff in between. Um, I don't know whether or not you could get away with doing the same if you just did lower intensity like you did with the other goods. We just don't know. But both are having a really big impact and really a big improvement in performance. Um, and again, across the board, across performance, you know, not just VO2 max, but performance time trial outcomes. I know a lot of cyclists are now using it. A lot of the, some of the Tour de France teams are now really looking at it. So there's a real big push in that regard. And then there's obviously an opportunity for, for team sports, um, some improvements in potassium ion channels and so on, which is really linked to high intensity, intermittent performance and so on. So there's improvements there. So there's conditioning aspects that come into play. I think where it gets, it gets difficult is that you're still limited by the applicability of it and whether you can actually, um, you know, you're not running with it 
you know, people have tried, people have looked at it, but um, I still, I, I still don't believe you need the high intensity exercise. When you do high intensity resistance exercise, you're not able to do the repetitions because there's too much, the pressure and the load reduce the repetitions and you don't get an adaptation. And I think you're going to see the same with blood flow restriction. People have been using it, like my old supervisor, Richard Ferguson at Loughborough, they were using it where they do sprints and then put the cuff on immediately after to trap the metabolites in, um, which has some theory, but actually in practice is a nightmare to do and really hard to do. So it's trying to think about how it can work and pe- loads of people are coming at it from different angles. But I think certainly the aerobic side is where you'll see big changes in the next two, three, four years. So what you're saying is in two or three years, we get back on the podcast and we get an update. Yeah, that's about. <laughs> I'll stick in <laughs> Yeah, go for it. <laughs> right, mate, where's the best place for people to um, keep up to date with your work? Yeah, probably most of the stuff's on Twitter. Cool. Um, I just, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, regularly put out our research and so on. Um, that's probably the, the easiest way to find it. Um, I've started to dabble in YouTube. We've done little videos of ab- abstracts and stuff of nice. just what we what we do. But it's one of those, it's like, it's a bit of a pain in the backside <laughs> to, to do. And you're sort, of for, you're sort of going, you want to get the information out, but actually I'm not sure if it really makes much of a difference. Mm-hmm. But you put a nice thread on about, about BFR few weeks ago that hit the spot didn't it yeah i did yeah. think there's lots of interest yeah. in, but you know at the end of the day as i said i think i said in it it's pretty simple you know it, it's not a, it's not a difficult modality to, to get and i think that's the the thing people then jump on it and go well we can do this but again it's just understanding know why you're applying it and that's you know the key takeaway understand the physiology and the reasons the adaptations you expect to get from it and then you can go well actually it will make an impact here and here and as a practitioner you're making those decisions of where you think it is and then you become a scientist and start going, well, actually, is it having an effect or not? And what does it look like compared to when we haven't done it in the past, compared to our normal rehab or our normal um, these things that we do in this you know situation with this athlete? And then you can start to say, well, actually, now as a club, we might need to engage with it more, or actually it's not working for us. And either that's because you're not doing it right. But you, know, you look at the reasons why you're doing it, look at the way you're doing it, and then you can start to make those decisions and then work out yes or no. Amazing. That has been an incredible hour for anyone who wants to know more about this area. So thank you very much. Really appreciate no it. It's, uh, I really do appreciate you coming back on, um, especially for a second time. So thank you. We'll keep in touch and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. No problem. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 426 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Stephen for giving up his time to have a little chat, another chat around blood flow restriction training. Definitely an area to keep an eye on. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Play, Kitman Labs, and our brand new partner, Rewire Fitness. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time. Oh,